All right. Well, welcome, everybody. This is uh, Hannah Long with the DOH comms team. And we want to welcome you to our weekly COVID press update with Drs. Grace, Padahon, and Ross. Uh, and I will be turning it over to Dr. Grace. Good afternoon, everyone. We appreciate you tuning in again today for this latest uh, COVID press update. Today is COVID day 561. And while we are finalizing the epidemiology report for today, we, we anticipate reporting 719 new cases, 359 hospitalizations, and very unfortunately, 19 new deaths. That means uh, now that 4,719 New Mexicans have lost their lives um, due to coronavirus. And uh, we mourn each one of those. I'm delighted once again, uh, on the other hand, to be here with my uh, esteemed colleagues, both in the medical profession and in the public health profession, uh, <clears throat> Dr. Laura Parahon, who will be updating us again today on vaccine progress and boosters. Christine Ross, our state epidemiologist, uh, will also review current data and go a little bit more into detail about why Delta uh, the Delta variant has been so different for, for us. And as usual, I'll finish up. And with that, and without further ado, I'm going to turn it over uh, to Laura. Great. Thank you, David. So um, thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, we'll go right up into the vaccine update. So um, this is exciting news for New Mexico. Uh, today, 70%, we hit 70% of New Mexicans 18 and over and 53.3, 12 to 17 are fully vaccinated. That is an incredible milestone, New Mexico. Congratulations, been working hard getting out there and getting vaccinated. And uh, just this past week, we had a 1.2 increase in vaccination um, in New Mexico. Um, uh, on another exciting note, 79.5% of New Mexicans 18 and over and 63.3 of 12 to 17 year olds have received at least their first dose. So keep it up, New Mexico, you're doing great. Um, so there's a lot of news on vaccine this week. So FDA had a hearing on the third Pfizer shot last week, and it's actually being reviewed at the ACIP right now, the Advisory Committee on Immunizations. There's gonna, um, the full approval for 16 and over was actually denied by the FDA, but the FDA is expected to issue an EUA for the third booster dose up for six months after completion of the two-dose regimen. Um, ACIP will recommend details um, finalizing tomorrow, and then the New Mexico uh, Medical Advisory Team will then review it that same night, which is tomorrow night. Uh, next slide. So you can see here, this is the timeline for the boosters. So uh, just as I just explained in the previous slide, so last Friday, the FDA um, heard the, the rec, um, you know, heard the Pfizer information. Then today, um, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices will be meeting today and tomorrow uh, to look at the recommendations. And then New Mexico Medical Advisory Team will give us the New Mexico recommendations. And on Monday, we will have possible booster doses for all the eligible groups. Next slide. 
So for those of you who are wondering, so if I am in the eligible group, um, um, how will I get the booster dose? So remember that it will probably be the same way that you did it before. You can schedule with your primary care provider or your pharmacist, wherever you got your shots in the first place. And remember that you can still get your flu shot at the same time as a COVID booster or any COVID shot. So, you know, any flu shot and uh, you get your flu shot and your COVID at the same time. If you're registered on the app, you can schedule yourself at vaccinenewmexico.org. So you see the little pictures. Uh, you can, it's the same way you did it last time. Um, if you hadn't done it that way, you can still register now if you didn't do that previously and also schedule yourself at vaccinenewmexico.org. One of the things we do want to share with you is that, um, you know, please be patient. We will, it'll be similar in the sense that we'll have much more demand than we have sites for vaccine at first, but uh, we want you to know that at the Department of Health, we've been doing a lot of planning. Uh, one thing that this, this uh, COVID pandemic has taught us um, on our 561st day already of the COVID, uh, COVID pandemic response is that New Mexico is adaptable and our team is adaptable and New Mexico is adaptable and we've been able to make changes and adapt as much as possible. And so that's the same with the vaccine doses. We'll have the doses for you guys. Um, it might just take a little longer than, than, than you know, right now where we have a lot more supply than demand. Next, next slide. Um, once again, um, when I am, when can I get the booster shot if I'm eligible? That will become possibly available um, this Monday on September 27th. And once again, uh, remember to update your pro profile or ask your provider. Next slide. Um, just so you know, uh, this is actually, there's a lot of people, a lot more people giving vaccine doses in New Mexico than it was when we just started. And so uh, right now we're giving about 28,000 doses a week in New Mexico. Um, the majority is, is being done by pharmacies. So thank you pharmacists out there and pharmacies, 62.5% are giving uh, vaccines. Shout out to our public health team. They're giving about 8.9% of the vaccine. Um, thank you, uh, Fairly Qualified Health Centers. You're giving 6.8% of the vaccine. Uh, hospitals, great job, 6.6% uh, of the vaccine. Thank you to all you private practice providers out there. And we're just encouraging more providers to get signed up for vaccine right now to, so you can give out boosters as well. That's 5.5% of our team. Indian Health Service, thank you so much, 5.2%. And then other public clinics, 3.1%. So keep it up, New Mexico. Sign up. TakeCareNewMexico.org is where you can sign up for, for um, becoming a provider if you haven't yet. Next slide. Um, you know, every week we are continuing to show data as, as the evidence comes forward that shows the vaccines are so highly effective. So this is just um, another um, article that came out this past week showing that um, all vaccines are effective, Moderna, Pfizer, Janssen and & Janssen. And uh, this actually is a study that looked at um, how effective was the COVID vaccine in preventing hospitalizations. We already know it's, um, it is effective for preventing death, preventing hospitalizations and cases, but here's even more information that says, yeah, you know, get vaccinated, 
this will show that um, the Moderna vaccine has a 93% um, after your full vaccination of preventing being hospitalized. Um, Pfizer is 88% and J&J is 71%. Still really, really effective. Um, next slide. Um, another exciting update in the vaccine world is that there are really great early positive results for the COVID-19 trials that um, Pfizer has shown for five to 11 year olds, and they will be applying for a EUA this, um, this, this end of this week, hopefully, or next by the end of the month. Um, they did a trial of a lot of kids, uh, to over 2,000 kids between the ages of 5 to 11 years old. Um, they did a two-dose regimen, just like the regular Pfizer, except they did a third of the dose, and they still had a really strong immune response. So we're expecting this, hopefully, just like the other vaccines when they applied for EUA several weeks later, it was approved. So we're hoping by Halloween that uh, your five to 11 year olds can get vaccinated, which is really exciting for those of you who have kids or grandkids in that age group. Next slide. So one of the questions we keep on getting um, from the public is what if I got Moderna or J&J, &J? will I need a booster? And that's actually really important because right now the EUA is just for Pfizer. Um, next slide. So the early positive results right now, J&J &J also are um, there going to apply for EUA. They showed that a second dose really increased their efficacy of the vaccine from 74% to 94%. And that two shots had 100% efficacy against severe disease. So look out for J&J. &J. Um, we're still waiting on the evidence. But um, yeah, just, uh, just, just know that that's not yet, um, you know, at an EUA level, but we're still waiting on, on that. Next slide. Um, another update on vaccinations is that there was a recent article that came out as well that vaccinations can actually decrease post-COVID-19 conditions. Um, that's also known regularly as long COVID, but basically people who have experienced um, symptoms beyond the 28 days, um, having a, when you are vaccinated and let's say you get a breakthrough case, your chance of getting long COVID or post-COVID condition is 50% less than if you didn't get vaccinated. So that's another um, really important thing for us to know that yes, vaccinations are um, preventing hospitalizations and death and cases, but also preventing us from getting long COVID. Next slide. Um, we know that though, we still have a lot of work to do to reach unvaccinated New Mexicans. Here's some data that is um, on our vaccine equity um, website page, but basically continuing to show that certain groups like Hispanic, Latino uh, populations are not getting vaccinated at the same rate as other groups and as well as African-Americans. And that's also um, shown here on the right-hand side for 12 to 15 year olds. So we really wanna keep on working on helping people get vaccinated because that's our best way out of this pandemic. Next slide. Um, so getting your vaccine is, is still easy to do. Um, once again, you know, the boosters are important, but primary vaccine is still the most important thing, getting your vaccine in the first place. So if you haven't gotten your vaccine yet, talk to your provider, 
talk to trusted friends and family. Um, we have a, a link here that where you can get facts on vaccine, um, vaccine questions you may have. And once again, sign up for the vaccine at New vaccinenewmexico.org or uh, make a call. Remember, it's free to you. No ID is necessary. Um, and regardless of your in insurance or immigration status, you can still get vaccinated. So thank you so much. Okay, with that, we're going to go to our state epidemiologist, Dr. Christine Ross, for an update on cases in Delta. Christine. Thank you, Secretary Scrace, and it's uh, my pleasure to be here this afternoon. Um, I have the pleasure of, of uh, presenting on the behalf of a really large uh, a group of individuals that contribute to uh, uh, all of the work that's necessary to uh, produce this, this data for you and share this uh, situational awareness uh, with everybody in the state. So I just have a few slides today. I'm gonna to start with the statewide epi curve. Everyone is familiar with this by now. So this is the number of cases and we, we plot this out by time. And you can see that uh, large mountain there in the middle uh, was, uh, represents what we saw during our winter surge. And then off to the right is what we've seen now uh, fueled by this very highly infectious uh, Delta variant. The red bar is 10, the, the 10 cases per 100,000 threshold. Uh, we would like to see our case count below that red bar. And you can see that our case counts remain uh, um, much higher uh, than that bar currently. Though I would like to point out that we are seeing a slowing uh, in the number of new cases uh, that we are reporting out each day. And this is represented by that uh, plateauing or flattening of the curve there uh, of the seven day moving average, which is this black dotted line. So you see that there's this flattening uh, and we certainly hope that we see this continue to trend uh, uh, downwards. So let's go ahead and move to the next slide. So we started off with uh, statewide and now we're gonna move to regions or regional level case rates. So this is the seven day rolling average of new daily cases uh, by region. So that's cases per 100,000 uh, population. And this slide is actually courtesy of one of our partners, uh, the Presbyterian uh, Modeling Group. And again, what you can see is that every region experienced a, a, a surge in cases uh, over the past, uh, over the summer months. And, but you can see one that really sticks out here in the blue, which is uh, the region of the Southeast. And what's interesting is that there's a, quite a sharp peak and you can see that there's um, a deceleration or decrease in the number of new cases if you follow that blue line along. And what you can see in the other regions is there's somewhat of a plateauing. Um, so we hope to see uh, these regional uh, curves also start to uh, have a clear uh, decreasing downward uh, slope uh, over the next uh, week or so. But you can clearly see this is happening in the southeast, the region that had really been hit uh, quite hard here with very high case rates. 
Okay, let's move to the, the next slide. And this is another one that I think you're all familiar with. So this is the, the level of community transmission. There's a table and a map. And, and most of the data that I share with you, again, this comes from our EPI surveillance team, and, and we try to get these posted on the website uh, weekly. Uh, and so what this what we do here is, is an adaptation from uh, uh, something that CDC posts on their website. Our methods are a little bit different, and I know we received a question about that. So they are a little bit different, so it's not gonna match up perfect, perfectly with what you see on the CDC website. And in general, we're looking at uh, the 14-day period uh, prior, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure CDC is looking at a seven-day period. So we're looking at 14 days, and as cases come in, we're going to report those out, um, but we're not going to include historical cases um, when we're looking at this just prior 14-day period. So these were specimens collected in that 14-day period. And then we also look at test percent positivity. So um, we've come up with a scale, uh, which is low, moderate, substantial, or high. And the scale is included in the report. And also uh, CDC has their own scale on, on the website. But what you can see here is we've been in a sea of red. So basically all across New Mexico, all New Mexico counties had been red, um, which equated to high levels of community transmission of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes uh, COVID-19. Um, but now what you see is we have a few counties that are uh, have downgraded into orange or which is still considered substantial level of transmission. Uh, but it's a very welcome sight to see that we have a county with over 100,000 population, uh, such as Santa Fe, has now moved into the orange. And we also have one county now uh, in the yellow, uh, which is a moderate level of transmission. So what we're hoping to see is this entire state uh, turn blue, uh, which would indicate a low level of uh, community transmission. So we can move to the next slide. And this one, um, oops, sorry, I just lost my screen. There we go. And so we wanted to show you a little bit about uh, the geography or where we're seeing um, uh, any difference in case rates. And now this is looking at uh, uh, case rates by age. And you're also familiar with this slide. And again, these are uh, case rates that are plotted out by time. And so again, in the middle of the slide, you see our winter surge and we had an elevation in, in, in case rates in, in all age groups. And now over on the right-hand side. This is our, our summer uh, surge, again, fueled by Delta. And what's interesting here, uh, which is uh, the highest case rates we're seeing, are amongst uh, the 18 to 34-year-olds and the 5 to 17-year-olds. And I pointed this out a few weeks ago, so I won't go into a lot of detail. Um, but We've shared with you our vaccination status report, which shows the, the majority of cases, hospitalizations and deaths are among unvaccinated individuals. And then we know that uh, there are many of us, many, many uh, um, uh, uh, young people in New Mexico that are not eligible yet for vaccination. So what we're seeing is cases among unvaccinated uh, 
adults who are eligible but just have yet not to be vaccinated, and then also the younger age groups that are not yet eligible but we hope will be uh, very soon, as Dr. Parahone had, had alluded to. So next slide. And then just, uh, this is also some data that you've seen before. And again, this is included in our EPI reports and we are getting a lot of questions about schools. So we wanted to include this again. Uh, the table on the top on the left is zero to four-year-olds. So these are pediatric case counts over time. So zero to four-year-olds on top, five to 17-year-olds on bottom. And you can see that we had an increase in, in uh, cases uh, among both those age bands. Uh, more dramatic in that five, five to 17-year-old uh, age band. And we're happy to see that this uh, does appear to be trending downwards. On the right-hand side, this is a table. Uh, again, you're familiar with this one. It shows the percentage of new cases each week by age. And we've been tracking very closely this yellow line. So this is cases among the five to 17 year old age group. And you can see that there are over 20% of our total cases are, are in that age group, five to 17. And then when you combine that uh, with the black line, which is the zero to four, we're finding overall about 24% or so of our total cases are in the pediatric uh, age group, uh, these age groups. And again, these, these are uh, mostly uh, children that are, are not eligible to be, to be vaccinated yet. And next slide. And so we wanted to just mention again uh, that we know uh, that we, we've been dealing with a, 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 a real uh, different uh, enemy with the Delta variant. And uh, we know that in, in late June or so, the, the Delta variant became the predominant strain or variant that we've sequenced here in the state. And this is depicted by the yellow bars. So this is the proportion of lineages that we sequence, the proportion uh, that are each of these different um, uh, variant types. So alpha, beta, gamma, and so on. But you can see that Delta took over and has, be, has continued to be the predominant variant um, that we sequence. And we'll just go to the next slide. Why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because we know that this variant is, is at least two times as contagious as the ancestral uh, or original variants that were circulating um, around the globe. And it has uh, certainly fueled um, uh, quite a surge of cases across the United States and obviously has affected us here in New Mexico. And you can see this depiction. This is a CDC graphic uh, which shows the original COVID-19 uh, strain and how one infected person uh, on average would uh, pass this to two other people. And then you can see that as compared to the Delta variant and why this has been uh, very problematic uh, for us um, and why we continue to urge everyone uh, to uh, get out. If you are eligible, please get out and, and get yourself vaccinated um, to protect yourself, protect those in your family, but um, also to protect um, our children who are not eligible yet, who are not eligible to be vaccinated. Um, I think I'm gonna turn it over. I think that might be my last slide and I'm gonna turn it over to Secretary Scrace.
Um, thanks so much, Christine. Thanks, Laura. It's such an honor for me to <clears throat> work with these amazing professionals. I know, uh, you know, Laura has developed this incredibly complicated but exact method for estimating vaccination by date and how many people we need to do. We're just waiting for those key variables, like who are we vaccinating uh, with a booster shot, and then how you know, and how long after the second dose of the primary series are we waiting? But we can just plug those numbers in and in an hour, really update our plan. And so that team is ready. And then Christine uh, and I, as I do with Laura, talk pretty much every day. You know, the, as Laura mentioned, we're on day 561 of COVID and we've changed course about 561 con consecutive days based on new data from research new New Mexico learnings and and additional data reports. And Christine really has been amazing in terms of turning out the wealth of information. Every more, every Wednesday morning, I get up uh, extra early, which I already get up extra early, <clears throat> but go through all the EPI reports and look at them all. And almost and, you know, and every time, pretty much, I get a new insight or a new idea. I think this week, the main thing, uh, that the main new insight for me is when we have a variant of COVID that's, let's just say two to four times more infectious than the previous ones, then whatever we're doing to counter the, you know, uh, whatever protective measures we're putting in, into place and whatever actions we take, they really have to be two to four times more potent than what we did uh, last time. And so I get a lot of questions and emails like, well, how come now we're doing this when six months ago, you know, you, we were doing something different or how come you're saying this today and you said something that was pretty different th from that six months ago. And the reason is things are changing and we're very fortunate to have a great data team here in New Mexico, a great vaccine team, our epidemiologists, our partners, we're doing the modeling with us. And so we are rich with data and we do understand though that providing everyone with so much data gives you the chance to ask us progressively harder questions. So we're really glad to have uh, Christine Ross back with us uh, today after her absence last week. So next slide, please. <clears throat> you know, uh, testing is continuing to keep up. We don't have a, a complete explanation for, uh, you know, what happened in the week before Labor Day weekend, but uh, we had good testing over Labor Day weekend. And I think you can see that we're testing at least in three of the last four weeks at the highest level that we've been testing since uh, January of this year. So doing well there, responding well, more use in the provider community of rapid testing, more interest amongst the public in rapid testing. And that's turning out despite the national shortage of materials, which we think will start getting better soon to be a great adjunct and a more convenient way to get folks actually rapid uh, results. But on the next slide, uh, you can see that that testing, it, we're doing a good job now. We're back below the target line of 7.5% down to 6.2. When we're above the green line, we worry that we're really not on top of all the cases and not sure that we're identifying you know, most of them. And uh, when we're below the green line, we have a greater level of confidence that we have the pandemic. You know, We're able to wrap our arms around it and really know what's going on in New Mexico. So we're pleased with the progress there. Next slide, I mentioned 
a more rapid and more convenient test. We're at an all-time low for test turnaround time, and this is a median uh, uh, turnaround time for testing across all of New Mexico. Southwest Labs making a very rapid use of rapid testing, which is bringing the time down. Hard to imagine they're up above what that must be like, what, two hours or three hours. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, great progress there. A couple, uh, you know, Tricor now over 1 million tests done on behalf of New Mexico with our, our state lab at uh, almost uh, three quarters of a million and, and cured of a latecomer to testing in New Mexico up to almost two thirds of a million tests. So we're making good progress there. I know sometimes people experience glitches or in special situations who want a certain kind of test availability. We're still working on that as case counts come down. We think we have a little breathing room there, but uh, we're watching that very closely. Next slide, please. Uh, and just a reminder <clears throat> to get tested. If you have symptoms, if you don't have symptoms, but you're in close contact uh, to a positive case, uh, you know, if you don't have symptoms but live or work in a high-risk congregate setting. And, and you may remember that two months ago, it was only two months ago, where we said, and you're unvaccinated to those things. But now it's really all of us again, because we know as of the end of July from CDC reports from Massachusetts, we now know that vaccinated individuals can harbor COVID in their nose. They can transmit it to others, unfortunately. But at the same time, <clears throat> they are at very, very low risk comparatively uh, for hospitalization and death. So it, it reminds us to keep our guard up. What I said earlier, about two to four times the amount of care um, doing these this sort of testing in vaccinated individuals is an example of expanding our caution and doing things to keep the pandemic at bay that we need to do. The rapid testing response and the fact that we're at an all-time low is really good news because that means we can reach out to people. They can isolate more quickly. Uh, we can reach their contacts. We can get them quarantined more quickly. And just a really, really important reminder that we'll put on this slide next time is that if you do go get tested, um, don't go back to work. Uh, you know, if you're tested because of symptoms or contact or in a high-risk situa situation, not just a work test, but for another reason, wait until you get the test result before you go back to work because you can infect other people. So please, please get tested and then please wait to have the results to hop back in uh, to your place of employment and resume other person-to-person uh, -person contact with the rest of uh, New Mexico society. Next slide, please. <clears throat> New Mexico uh, hospitalizations and deaths. We had some great questions today. Uh, Algernon in particular, I'm gonna try to weave some of the answers to your questions into my presentation today, but of course, we're willing to take other questions as well. On the next slide, uh, for those of you who are new, this is the self-reported, how bad is it in New Mexico hospitals right now scoring system? that we implemented last November. You can see it way over to the left where we were in crisis standards of care mode and did invoke a public health order declaring what effectively is rationing of care. Fortunately, that was a very short period of time. We got out of it quickly. Uh, this time we were up in the red zone again. We're skating right on the line uh, between crisis standards of care contingency level two. We have not invoked 
crisis standards of care uh, um, at this point in time. And uh, and we have a little bit of good news that seem, things seem to be easing up a little in the hospital, but remember hospital activity follows case activity. Cases are now at a plateau there. They came down a little, but they're not uh, sloping downward the past few days. And so we're still really concerned about our hospitals. On the next slide, we have a, uh, a graphic that shows the number of open ICU beds on the left. Um, a couple of weeks ago, that number was 16. I think last week it was in the 20s. Uh, today it was 30. Um, uh, yesterday morning on the right, these are the medical surgical beds. And Algernon asked a question about, well, uh, I've heard that these aren't actually fully staffed beds. These are actually uh, uh, licensed beds. And for the purposes of going into crisis standards of care, we really do expect all hospitals to find whatever way they can to staff up to their fully licensed beds. But in the daily reporting that comes to uh, DOH, uh, hospitals do report how many folks they're able to care for uh, in a given day as well. And so actually, if we just reported open staff beds, uh, this uh, report would look worse. Uh, it's impossible to have negative numbers. What that would mean would be that we would transfer more people out of state uh, than we were already doing. And on that note, uh, I wanna just answer a question that someone will ask today, because we always get asked this question during this time. But I believe, uh, <clears throat> and I didn't wasn't able to pull up the slide right before, but in, in last week, we had four people transferred into the state of New Mexico from out of state for hospitalization, but over 60 people transferred from the state of New Mexico to our out of state hospital colleagues in Texas, Arizona, Colorado, and elsewhere. We have more out of state people in New Mexico beds and they come from a wide variety of places as far away as Maine, uh, you know, Alabama, other places like that. And we have a list of those and we'll, I'll, I'll try to remember to bring that next week. But what that kind of tells us is in all likelihood, particularly from people uh, people who are hospitalized in New Mexico from non-contiguous states and absent any record of their transfer through our central uh, transfer system, uh, these people are all almost certainly visiting New Mexico on vacation or here on business, get sick and are hospitalized. And so, uh, but overall, particularly in the past two weeks, a significant, we've been a significant net exporter of patients to other states, uh, a lot more people going out than coming in. Uh, but at the same time, Texas beds, which we monitor pretty much three times a week and look at those numbers, have actually dropped, available Texas beds have dropped to an all-time low over the past couple of weeks as well. So situation is still tight, a little bit, bit of breathing room, but I will, as I will tell you at the end, Every time I talk to hospital people, anybody who works in a hospital, they say, please tell everyone to get vaccinated because we just are not seeing vaccinated people in the hospital these days. Next slide. Um, projecting, sort of Lionel projecting on the left, they're leveling off. Those dots are actual hospitalizations. And so they do seem to be leveling off for if you're an optimist like me, maybe there's a slight downward trend on the right Presbyterian projecting all hospitalizations in the blue graph with a slight down, uh, downward trend and ICU hospitalizations with a downward trend as well. So hopefully our modeling will prove true. 
hopefully we'll give a break to some of our hospitals. You know, we've been sharing epidemiologic data, but it's really interesting to see the viewpoint from hospitals as well. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, uh, no, not it's not the next slide, but Christine already dealt with hospitalizations. We've had a lot of questions about hospitalizations in the five to 17 year olds. That's that orange group. We pulled apart the data in detail over the past 10 weeks, the, the number of uh, kids hospitalized uh, it per week has uh, ranged between one and five. That's the number, not the percent. And uh, over the past four weeks, no, past six weeks, uh, that number has ranged from three to five kids in the hospital each week. So still very low. And according to the CDC and our own uh, uh, success and our own beliefs here in New Mexico about the success of our vaccination effort, we like other much higher vaccination rate states uh, are experiencing way lower uh, children's hospitalizations. Those lowest vaccination rate states, or even the bottom half, you may remember from previously three to three and a half times as many ER visits as states like New Mexico with high vax rates and three to three and a half times as many hospitalizations among kids. So again, uh, all you adults and all you eligible for vaccination who've gotten it have not only protected yourself and your family, but you've actually protected in a really meaningful way all of the children of New Mexico. And we really thank you for that as well. Next slide. Yeah, this is one of those graphics with the little people. I, I really like it. Uh, I'm not really good with green and red colors, but you can see on the left of the 120 people that were in Presbyterian hospitals throughout the state all added up together, um, there were 128 in the hospital, 120 of them were unvaccinated, only eight were vaccinated. So if you're working in a hospital, this is what you see every day. Uh, if you're working in an intensive care unit, that, that vaccinated number tends to be zero and the number of deaths tends to be zero as well. And so during the stressful time for our hospital workers where they're really uh, working incredibly hard, again, uh, that the challenge of taking care of really sick people and knowing that these illnesses could have been prevented is really, a it's really emotionally stressful and hard not to mention the visitor restrictions and things like that to keep family members from being at the bedside with sick people. That puts additional stress on our healthcare workforce in our state. Next slide, please. Uh, COVID deaths as we've been following very closely, mainly focused on that red box. You know, a couple of weeks ago, that number that's now 43 was 20. That number that's 57, a couple of weeks ago, I think was 16. And so as each week goes by and uh, death certificates processed and sent to us, we file uh, those deaths according to the date of death, not the date that we receive the certificate. These are deaths by week, fortunately, but we, as you all know, we've had quite a number of double digit uh, days, uh, more than 10 people dying. I think today we anticipate that we'll end up reporting, as I mentioned, 19 deaths. It's very sad to continue to see those deaths, particularly when uh, uh, nine out of every 10 at a minimum and possibly more are preventable, as I mentioned. Next slide. Uh, treatments, uh, just some updated information and a reminder, uh, please, uh, if you are COVID positive, let's go to the next slide. Just a reminder, you're COVID positive and you have symptoms. And then either 
you're 65 or older, you're obese, or you have any of the other list of conditions that put you at higher risk for COVID, uh, please seek out monoclonal antibody treatment. I know uh, there's a national shortage. New Mexico supply is good right now. We're managing that well. We have some reserve supply, so we're not anticipating imminently not having enough. And you can see that continued upward trend. One really high week uh, around the Labor Day weekend. Uh, but And then we're also working with our federal partners and looking at the possibility of bringing in teams uh, to administer monoclonal antibodies in more remote locations. Our problem right now is our hospitals are so full and our hospital staffing is so strapped that we're actually unable to, uh, hospitals are unable to both take care of the 110 to 150% of capacity uh, that they have in their hospitals and uh, set up an, uh, another outpatient infusion clinic. Many emergency rooms are doing it. There are still some systems that are administering the drug, obviously, as you can see here, we were over for underdoses in the past week, but it is treatment that will reduce one's risk of hospitalization by as much as 75%. Next slide, please. We got some questions this week about ivermectin. And, uh, you know, uh, for Oregonians or hospitalized, Oregonian, I'm told, is a person who lives in Oregon, obviously. And hospitalized recently due to the consumption of ivermectin. Uh, two of those five people required intensive care. Patients were in their 20s to 80s, most older than 60. And uh, their uh, cases are generally in Oregon were obtained from a prescription for either human or veterinary forms of the drug. You know, the jury is out on ivermectin. It is not recommended by the FDA for uh, this uh, indication of treating COVID. In other studies, it's shown a little bit of antiviral activity, but two problems with ivermectin. One is it can be toxic, as we can see from these folks admitted to intensive care units. We've also had some folks admitted uh, into hospitals in New Mexico. And two is, that while people are pursuing, perhaps they're at home, they have symptoms and risk factors and they're uh, obtaining a veterinary ivermectin prescription and trying that to control their COVID, they're missing on proven treatments from randomized clinical trials, uh, monoclonal antibody uh, treatments. So there are two reasons why it can be dangerous. What you're getting when you take the drug that's unproven and what you're not getting instead when you take it. The next slide, I told you a few weeks ago, we partnered with our poison control uh, folks at UNM. Uh, we've mandated reporting for all ivermectin cases uh, here in New Mexico. Um, and you can see here, it's been, and these are daily reports. So lately in the past week, it's been one or two per day for the past seven days. And that's about a doubling of what we've seen in the previous week. Our medical advisory team has looked at this three times, still does not feel uh, people should be taking it. And of course, the FDA has not yet approved it. So we're watching the literature. We're reading everything we can on it. Uh, there's a very strong advocacy community for taking the unproven drug. But as you know, in New Mexico, we try to go with the preponderance of evidence and we just don't have it yet to uh, recommend this drug. And if you have taken it, or someone you know has taken it, uh, you can call the poison control number, which is listed here uh, near the bottom of the slide. And uh, we'll go from there. Also, I did want to mention uh, that we mentioned a couple press conferences ago, 
that there were several people in New Mexico who were hospitalized uh, for ivermectin. Uh, both of those individuals uh, over ivermectin toxicity, um, and both of those individuals have died. Uh, we cannot release actually much more detail than that, uh, just because of the circumstances and the and there are uh, details that would make it easy uh, for someone in their area to narrow down who they might be. But it's a serious issue. Uh, we need to watch it. I know that uh, one of the patients had a fairly uh, serious issue with COVID and that was a case, uh, a serious COVID infection was on a ventilator. The other patient was on dialysis and uh, the ivermectin was basically taken in lieu of or instead of effective treatments. Next slide, please. Uh, and then as we get to the end today, I just wanted to highlight a couple uh, words of wisdom and and concern from our partner hospitals here in the state, Sergio Torres, an intensive care nurse at Loveless, uh, just says, uh, please, if you have not been vaccinated, get the shot. It's the best thing that anyone can do right now. People in intensive care units in New Mexico are very clear on the effectiveness of the shot because they're just not seeing hardly anybody in their ICUs. And then uh, a very charming story, Ashley Apodaca, who is a charge nurse at Presbyterian Hospital. Uh, she's really focused, you know, in her comments about masking, social distancing, staying safe, and, you know, how hard it's been that the loss of our community interactions with social distancing, it really has been hard, but please do what you can, she says, to keep your loved ones safe. This picture is actually little hearts she made when she started at the beginning of the pandemic, she made one of these by hand every day when someone died from COVID. Well, now she has thousands and thousands and she's uh, switched from basically production mode to distribution mode. And now she's giving them away uh, to folks in memory of lost loved ones. So a sweet story that was featured uh, by the Albuquerque Journal and uh, reminds us of how much New Mexicans really do care about other New Mexicans. And then the last slide, just a reminder again about vaccination. Uh, if you get tested, if you have any symptoms, there's lots of other reasons to get tested, but stay home until you get the results. And uh, again, a reminder to seek out monoclonal antibody treatment. Indoors is two to four times more dangerous than it was last year at this time or at a time when we had equivalent case counts with a ancestral variant that have already come and gone here in New Mexico. So you have to be extra cautious. We all have to be extra cautious, washing our hands, wearing those masks, maintaining social distancing, a special caution indoors, uh, getting vaccinated again, and then uh, keep up with your preventive health care. I know I just got my blood work yesterday. I'm going in for an annual exam with my primary care doctor because uh, I know that that's something I need to do to keep my engine tuned up. And uh, if I, if I want to be, uh, uh, continue, uh, continue to be as engaged and uh, dedicated as I am at, on, on, on day 561 of COVID, let's say on day 861, then I know I have to take care of myself too. And we all need to, we all need to do that. Uh, our public health workers, uh, each one of us is facing enormous challenges during this pandemic. Please take care of yourselves. And with that message, uh, I'm going to turn it back to Hannah 
to kind of uh, open us up for questions and she'll remind us of the process we do for that. Let's uh, end the presentation and, and Hannah. All right, thanks so much, Dr. Scrace, and thanks to all of our principals. So as usual, we'll take questions in the order which they appear. So please raise your virtual hand if you'd like to ask a question. Uh, when I call on you, if you wouldn't mind just repeating the name of your outlet so that our panelists are aware of who's asking and where you're from. Uh, and just a reminder of our new protocol, so we're not gonna limit things to one question. We'll cycle through as many times as we need. So then our request to you is to just ask one question at a time and not cluster multiple questions um, to allow our principals to focus and offer a clear answer. Um, so with that, we will begin with Chris McKee, followed by Dan McKay, and then Lisa Knudsen. Chris, you should be able to talk. Okay, thank you guys very much. Um, I did send a question ahead of time, so hopefully maybe you y'all got a chance to discuss it a little bit. Um, I had a question about kind of the vaccine requirements and how as those sort of start to take more widespread effect at the federal level, and we saw some of that at the state level, right, getting into the state fair, the vaccine requirement this year, you know, there is a push there from some people to recognize natural immunity instead of just the vaccination. So. Um, other folks are highlighting this Israeli study as well, suggesting that perhaps natural immunity from an infection might be better than vaccinated immunity. So with all that kind of context, just is the state sort of looking at considering the idea of natural immunity as sort of the same footing as those vaccinated? And maybe how do you convince someone who's had a COVID infection to get a vaccine? Thanks. Yeah, Chris, we're, we're going to, we're decided to, uh, establish a new award, the Chris McKee Award for the longest, hardest question that we get every month. And so the month isn't over, so Thank I'm not you. saying you're going to get it. But and that was a really hard question. And we had a very spirited debate about two hours ago about the answer to your question. I think there's some things we do know and a whole bunch of stuff we don't really know yet. And I'll talk about what we do know. And then Christine will probably talk more about what we don't know. And of course, Laura is welcome to chime in as well. But, uh, you know, the, the study did show that a higher, uh, a lower rate of reinfection in people who had had COVID than people who had not. Uh, we started, Matt, remember back in the early or late or late spring or early spring, we started looking at uh, herd immunity before we realized that wasn't really going to be a thing that would uh, be achieved anytime soon. And so one thing we do know is, you know, at the present time, about 12% of New Mexicans have been infected with COVID. And at the time we did it, and for I think a couple months as we were tracking this closely, about 50% of people who had been infected also had been vaccinated. So we do know that, you know, the number we're talking about here of people who are unvaccinated is about half. Uh, and uh, we looked a little bit beforehand because the question isn't, it's really not at this point vaccinated uh, uh, vaccinated people's immunity versus people who've had COVID's immunity. To me, the question I want to know is people who've had COVID's immunity versus uh, uh, people who've had COVID plus vaccine, which would be the answer to your question, how do we pe convince people who've had COVID whether they should get a vaccine or not? And so that's still out there. Uh, and But I do think that for the time being, uh, I know in my family, we had some folks 
who got COVID, unfortunately, and the instant they were eligible for the vaccine, got it. I would, if I were in that situation, I would still default to the vaccine, but we just don't have that data. So it's an interesting situation, and particularly in the world of Delta, because remember that Israeli study was done on people who were infected or vaccinated in January or February, and now we're in a Delta world, which is a two to four times more uh, spreadable virus. And so that's that kind of gets us into stuff we don't know. And Christina, why don't you provide some counterpoint? Well, you, you know that I always focus on all of the things we don't know <laughs> um, because uh, uh, this this is a novel virus, and we we you know the scientific community has uh, is 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 working uh you know 24 7 generating data and you know we typically make public health recommendations based on a preponderance of data we don't make a move uh one way or the other based on one study um i haven't read this study you're mentioning i believe it's a preprint which means you know it has to go through peer review and then be published um, so I think it's a, a, maybe a little bit early to comment on it. And, and I would just say that, you, you know, absolutely, we, we do have evidence that, that natural infection uh, confers a, a, a degree of uh, uh, immune uh, uh, protection uh, or protection for the individual. But there are so many questions about it. Um, uh, you know, people who become uh, infected with SARS-CoV-2 and have COVID-19 disease, they can have asymptomatic, mild, uh, all the way to very severe uh, disease. And so uh, it appears that your, your immune uh, response and then uh, perhaps the robustness of that response and the duration of that response could correlate to, to what sort of uh, uh, infection or disease did you experience. Um, there's also data that, that questions the, the, um, the durability or the duration of that protection from natural infection. Um, so I think it's an absolutely excellent question that you ask. And I think that um, it is something that we continue to learn about every single day. There is more and more data. And like I said, we wanna pull all that data together uh, to make informed decisions. At this point in time, we know that the safety and the efficacy of the vaccines are so high uh, that we we don't want to risk that. We don't want to. We don't know what sort of protection an individual may have uh, who experienced uh, a, a natural infection um, with SARS-CoV-2. So that's why um, uh, we strongly recommend that you still pursue um, vaccination. But there are many, many questions, uh, and I think you raise an, a, a really excellent, uh, I'm glad that you've raised it, and it is one that we'll continue to learn about and talk about uh, as we move forward. Yeah, one last thing, Chris, because I, I really, we really like this question a lot, although we like questions that we can answer uh, even better. But uh, I think the other thing is there's two, you've sort of highlighted that there's two real applications to this question. So in my mind, when I see that we're 70% vaccinated now, fully vaccinated in New Mexico, yay, and hats off to Laura 
and her team for that. I do take uh, the percent of New Mexicans who've been, uh, who've had COVID and divide that by two and kind of add that in my head. So today I'm thinking we got 76% of people out there with, you know, some sort of meaningful level of immunity. That's really good. On the other hand, what you're asking about is like, what could be the practical application on the individual level for getting into the state fair? And I got to tell you, one of the most challenging things in my clinical practice right now is I have a number of people currently undergoing chemotherapy because I'm a geriatrician and uh, a high rate of cancer. And a lot of them want to know uh, what whether they have antibodies to COVID after their vaccine. And so, you know, I, I plead with them not to get it, but sometimes we do. And when you get the lab report back that says whether they have antibodies or not, the report says this, it's not possible to actually interpret this information. Like there's no guidance whatsoever. So before we got to a place where natural immunity could, let's say, be a passport, if you will, into something which, uh, you know, we would need a reliable way of sort of measuring that immunity apart from just the history of having COVID. So, but, you know, I think it's a fascinating question we need to explore and, and, and uh, there are lots of other more complicated answers and debates we had about this that we thought uh, we wouldn't lay out for all of you today, but as the literature comes out, we'll keep you updated because it's a good question. Thanks, Dan. I mean, thanks, Chris. All right, next up, Dan McKay. Go for it, Dan. Um, hi, Dr. Scrace. Thank you for taking our questions. This is probably for you, um, and I'm Dan McKay with the Albuquerque Journal. Um, the the two people, you mentioned two people who had died at New Mexico hospital hospitals from ivermectin overdoses. Is that in addition to the one you had mentioned earlier? So do we have two or three? No, it's then, two. Two we're aware of right now. Two, okay, two total. And do you know whether they obtained the, the this drug from a, a, a human doctor prescription or from a vet store or, or what? I do not know that today. And uh, it's a great question. And I, I think, you know, as we're, once we implemented mandatory, first step one is mandatory reporting. Step two is people start reporting. Three, we have to ask them questions and they're often investigations, but I'm adding that to my list and we will. I don't know, Christine, do you know anything more about this than I do? I think we've reached out to the hospital. We're engaging in discussions with them right now. Thanks. All right, next up we have Lisa Nudson followed by Sasha Leninger. Uh, Lisa, you should be able to share. Hi, thank you. Yeah, this is Lisa Knudsen. I'm with Source New Mexico. And I did send in my question, but it was just an hour before. So I'm not sure that you guys got a chance to look at it, but possibly this is for you, Dr. Scrace. Um, back in August, August 17th, you issued an order for hospital workers uh, to, to become vaccinated. And the language in the order said that all paid and unpaid individuals who work on site in a hospital setting where care is provided to patients um, should are required to vaccinated. And so my question is about EMT and paramedic uh, firefighters and other um, staff who are first responders and who are expected to go into the field 
um, pick up patients who may be immunocompromised and then go into hospital settings, even though they're not paid by that hospital, uh, to then transfer patient care. So the interpretation from um, the EMT paramedics that I've talked to is that they are not required to get vaccinated. And I'm asking, um, did you intend to include them because they are going into hospital settings? And if not, why not? Yeah, that's a great question, too. We really liked uh, the question. I did see it. Thank you. It kind of depends on which EMTs you talk to about whether they're required to be vaccinated or not. So, for, like, for example, all of the EMTs, everybody who works for Albuquerque Ambulance, even in the back office and, you know, people who answer the phone are required to be vaccinated by their parent organization. Uh, it was interesting because we started in our state with an intention to start with people who either have been reporting this already, like nursing homes and assisted living facilities, or people who had the capability of reporting because they're already reporting a lot of other stuff, like hospitals. So we started by focusing on facilities in New Mexico uh, and uh, have gotten pretty much all of them into uh, reporting. There's a few that haven't reported, but it's like two out of 60, we're working with them. Uh, I think different hospitals are taking it in different directions. And based on your uh, question, we're gonna talk about that at the medical advisory team on Friday. I know like, for example, one large hospital in New Mexico considered all of the attending physicians that come in to see patients that don't work for them as part of uh, falling under that rule. And it sounds like you're talking to some other folks who may work for independent ambulance companies, but from a logic perspective, I think uh, all of those individuals who really interface with patients in a healthcare setting and, and come into the hospital uh, should be uh, really strongly considered for the vaccine mandate as well. Second thing is that uh, the Biden administration recently uh, released uh, uh, you know, beginning guidance for their mandate for hospital workers and, and healthcare workers. And they have an even more potent uh, a carrot or stick, depending on how you look at it, which is if you get paid by Medicaid or Medicare, you will have to be vaccinated. And interestingly, they started with a focus on facilities only. We read the uh, information quickly between an hour ago when you sent the question and, and now, and it, and it seems like they're taking a similar approach to New Mexico, but the logic that you're laying out is very sound. And uh, we just wanted to sort of start with the biggest uh, groups of healthcare providers. And uh, we, as you know, we can we will put out another uh, public health order in the middle of next month. We keep a list of things that are under consideration. We're adding that to the list. We'll talk to our medical advisory team. We have uh, EMT experts. Kyle Thornton does a great job for our state, uh, working in our uh, 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 with Christine Ross in epidemiology. Uh, we've got great folks supporting us on the mat, and so we will we'll add that to the list and see what we come up with. But thanks for raising it. It's a really good question. All right, thanks everybody. Next, we'll go to Sasha Leninger, followed by Mike Smith, and then Julia Goldberg. Sasha, you should be unmuted and able to ask your question. Hi guys, thanks for squeezing me in. Sasha here over at KOAT. Quick question, because we have sometimes confusion here at the station and people who call, the difference between a third shot and a booster shot. Is there a difference? If so, can you explain it? Because um, sometimes we hear those terms used interchangeably 
throughout other newscasts as well. Um, and how is our state getting ready for the possibility of those boosters come Monday? So great question. I'm gonna just give a very brief answer. Unfortunately, I use those terms interchangeably and I shouldn't. Uh, a third shot currently refers to those people who get uh, the primary series, but then very strong evidence showed that they didn't get as strong of an immune response if they had an immune deficiency, solid tumor, uh, under treatment for chemo, things like that. So the round of additional vaccines we just are we're currently still going through that started in, uh, in August or late July, early August and extended through till now. We call those third shots and those are proven to boost the immunity of uh, people with immune disorders. I shouldn't have said boost, sorry, to raise the immunity of those people with immune disorders. Boosters uh, are what we've been talking about today. And that's sort of a like a flu shot, something you would get uh, from time to time, presumably, that would increase your uh, immune system's responsiveness. In otherwise normal people or people who fall into non-severely immunosuppressed categories. I think I got that right, Laura. Do you want to talk about that anymore and then planning for the, the booster uh, rollout? Yeah, and maybe just also make another little difference too is that um, the third dose, like you said, for the immune compromise is Pfizer and Moderna was EUA approved. So you can get Pfizer or Moderna in that case for the booster dose that we're talking about right now, um, yeah. it's only for Pfizer. So just a clarification, because I think that might be confusing to people who, who might think they need a, and, and actually one of the questions that um, is gonna be discussed during this ASAP meeting is whether you can mix and match. So let's say you got a Moderna, can you get a booster Pfizer? So that's kind of um, something that's being discussed as well today and tomorrow. Um, in terms of planning for the doses, our team has been working really, really hard. Like Christine says, there's a huge team at DOH that just works on vaccine distribution, assuring you know it's getting spread throughout the state and especially for um, areas with high social vulnerability. And so that team actually has already laid out you know a system of how many doses depend like you know like like david said there is no clear starting line right we so far we have 65 plus that sounds like that's definitely going to go through but who are people who are high risk for severe covid we're still awaiting that um, recommendation from asip and cdc and the medical advisory team so once we have all the people who are going to get um get their doses you know eligibility wise then we can operationalize our plan but we do have several plans we have plans for six months for eight months you know out we have plans for um, when they add children we have plans for when they add moderna and j and j so um we just don't know what the starting line is so we're just waiting on that i hope that answers your question but uh we do have little charts and graphs that we use yeah i think our sense right now is unless everything happens all at once, we're going to be, we're going to be able to handle the volume. You know, we have a blip. We're going to have a significant increase uh, depending on what happens today and tomorrow, we believe. Even just the older people in New Mexico is over, you know, going to be over 250,000 vaccines. And then of course, five to 11, which we're all eagerly awaiting, you know, that's going to be a push. We're really uh, 
counting on pediatricians in New Mexico who see these kids a lot during their younger years and are like experts at administering every single vaccine. And there's a ton of them that are required for kids as they grow up to prevent them from getting communicable diseases. So we think our pediatricians and our family practice doctors who do this exact same thing for kids are gonna be key uh, to this effort as well, uh, particularly as we roll out. And then, and then I think when we're talking about boosters, the third shot, uh, we are in a transition, I think, from mass vaccination clinics and all the things we did in the winter and spring and summer to really having this be part of normal routine healthcare in your doctor's office, You know, getting your flu shot like many of us get every year, getting your COVID vaccine in your nurse practitioner's office or you know, getting that, uh, that third shot if you need it. Uh, and you have an immune de deficiency from your physician's assistant, whatever. So we're making that transition. We're very grateful to people for stepping up and being willing to uh, bring those vaccines on board in their clinics. So, because if we get the vast majority of primary care uh, clinics giving these vaccines, it's going to be close to home for people, for almost everybody in New Mexico. And that's important. All right, now we're going to go to Mike Smith. And Mike, you should be unmuted and able to ask your question. All right. Hello, everybody. Again, I'm with the Carlsbad Current Argus. I know I asked you all last week if San Andy County could obtain a vaccination or a full vaccination rate. Let me back up here and say that a full vaccination rate of 50%. I've noticed now that, I believe it was as of yesterday, I haven't seen the latest figures that our full vaccination rate is 50%, or not 50%, I'm sorry, it's 47%. Y'all still think that, you think that's attainable by next week, or do you think it's still going to be October before we hit that? Well, uh, Laura did the math on this one, so I'm going to let her speak. <laughs> well, actually, my team did the math on this. So thank you, Mike. Uh, when you asked that question, I sent it out to our team, and they calculated that. So they, um, so they basically said that it'll probably be more like two weeks. Um, if, you know, obviously uh, if that changes, you know, in terms of like more people wanting to get vaccinated in the next two weeks, then you could potentially make it uh, by next week. But um, given how the, uh, you know, how the number of doses that have been given out in Eddie <coughs> County every week, uh, they think it'll be more like two weeks. Um, yeah, so they said there's a remaining 869 people left to get vaccinated to 50%. So uh, if you can try to get more people, like 869 people vaccinated by next week, that would be amazing and you would beat your goal. Now, Mike, just call 869 of your friends in Eddie <laughs> County and that aren't vaccinated, have them come in. And I'm looking at the dashboard today. Actually, this is data, it's posted weekly by county. And uh, on the 20th, two days ago, Eddie was at 47.6%. So 2.4% away. And at about 1.1% a week, that's about two and a half weeks or a little. The more people you get out, the sooner you'll get there. And I'm, I really like it too. Like I talk about this a lot, but I really want, I really think part of the way of living with coronavirus and fighting this pandemic and resuming normal life while increasing our ability to fight it is for communities to set their own goals and have their own targets and 
have campaigns to get to those targets. And, you know, all, you know, I don't like, I'm, I'd be just as happy. I'm just as happy that any County wants to go to from 47.6% to 50 as I would be if Los Alamos had a target of going to 88 from 88.1 to 90, like any improvement anywhere in the state helps. And, and what we, what we've learned in the past couple of weeks is we've actually, without even knowing it, provided huge protection for our kids and dramatically reduced hospitalization rates of New Mexico kids as a result of all of us getting vaccinated. So thanks. And, and to all of you, like we're very gratified. You know, we really have a lot of rural community uh, media folks on these calls and we're excited about that because you really are the voice out in those communities. And the more you can get the word out and keep people apprised of their progress and thank them on our behalf for the progress they've already made, uh, the better. All right, next we're gonna turn to Julia Goldberg followed by Algernon DeMassa and then Sean Griswold. Julia, you should be unmuted and able to ask your question. Uh, thank you, Hannah, and thank you everyone. Uh, this is Julia Goldberg with the Santa Fe Reporter. Bear with me. I have a question. I wanna make sure that I understand the relationship between the community transmission rates and the case rates. I had asked the question, Dr. Ross, and I assumed it was the case that the dis discrepancy between the CDC community transmission rates and ours was the week versus two week. But I guess what I'm wondering about is that last spring when we were still under the red green thing, Dr. Scrace, you had made a per capita adjustment for the smaller counties um, for some of those criteria. And when I look at uh, the transmission rates in in keeping with the case rates of the geographic report, I guess I wonder why we end up with something like DeBaca, which CDC had in the blue, now in the yellow, we have in the red, the geographic report says they've had no cases. And even, and even a county like Roosevelt, which has really low vaccination rates, but also doesn't have particularly high case rates put within the context of other counties, and yet it is also in the red. I'm just trying to kind of understand how to read um, that as a through line, or if one even should, but I assume there's a relationship between those case rates and the community. Uh, transmission Julia, Yes. One question makes no sense, right? No, no. What report are you looking at specifically? Oh. Just so we could be talking off the same page. I am looking at uh, this week's uh, geographic, uh, the geographic epidemiology report. Yeah, and what and what page? Oh, I'm on geographic trends on page one to the third page. Average daily case rate per one hundred thousand in the previous seven days. And I'm look, but I'm looking at that compared with also the. CDC. the well, the CDC and our own community uh, trans, uh, transmission rates, which is in the which report? Uh, yeah, that's in the county report. So okay. that's right. Thanks. I don't know, Christine, do you want to speak to this? I, I, I could probably figure out a way to bring up both reports. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to go through all those those differences, but it, it tends to, Julie, I believe the, the bottom line is, is you're looking at reports that are looking at a different time frame. So, so that report that you just had pulled up was the prior seven day case rate. And our methodology is gonna be a little bit different. And we're gonna pull out 
in, in our community levels of transmission, we pull out historical cases, whereas all of those go right up to CDC and they're gonna plot them by day of report. So there's just some subtle differences that um, when you look between the reports, you're, you're gonna see uh, differences when, when you carefully look what you've done. Um, but look at the time frame, and then look at the methodology because there's slight differences in, in what's excluded, what's included. Um, and and that, uh, that can uh, lead you to these differences, which you've noticed. And yeah, so, I'm sorry. The seventh to the 20th year and the 13th to the 19th year, for example. Right. But so Dr. Schweiss, what you had said last spring was that in these small counties, one case make, could make a huge difference, which is why you had made that adjustment. And so I'm just wondering, like in a case of a county like Tobacco, where here in this one week, they had no cases, but then just a week later, they're in high transmission. Is it the case then that is that why? Because of the size of the county? Yeah, they've got 1,840 people. And remember, when we did make that adjustment, we didn't change any of the numbers. We just, well, we did kind of, we pretended they had 5,000 people. It mainly affected the color of the county. It didn't affect the true actual incidence. And so, uh, you know, they, and also CDC, uh, much to, well, I have a strong personal preference for reporting if we're going to do epidemiology language cases per 100,000 people per day, I really like the per day. I think it's a better way to get your mind around things. Uh, CDC reports per week uh, generally. So, and I, I'm pretty good with math in my head, but dividing on by seven isn't my favorite thing to do. And so that sometimes trips me up too. Uh, so that could be possibly the case. As well. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that, because that is also a, a, a methods difference between what we do and what they do with their uh, level of uh, community transmission uh, map and table. But and one last thing is every single shred of data you see from the CDC about New Mexico comes from our epidemiology group. So it's it's so it is the exact same data. It's just it gets chopped and packaged in slightly different size packages. Exactly. Thanks. Thanks, right. Julia. Next, we're going to go to Algernon DeMassa, followed by Sean Griswold, and then Brittany Costello. Algernon, you should be unmuted and able to ask your question. Thank you, everybody. Um, just following up on uh, the personnel that we need in our hospitals, um, I'm looking sort of as a future facing question, whether at this time you're able to start projecting future needs at some point, more people will be vaccinated, the Delta wave will recede. Um, and I know that some of the efforts we've made to staff our hospitals and clinics include people who are here temporarily. We've brought retired workers back. We've brought in people through the core. And I'm wondering if there's any projections yet or any anticipation of where we're gonna be left at the bottom of that wave and how we can address it so that we can staff for our needs post pandemic or at least post wave. Yeah, and that's a really great question too. And uh, 
You know, the uh, I think one thing that we don't, I don't think we've hit the bottom of this curve yet or the top of it or, is people leaving healthcare because they just can't do it anymore. And there are some reports nationally of, you know, uh, uh, you know, a third of people seriously, you know, that were in healthcare seriously considering early retirement or changes. Um, you know, I know in public health workers, 53% of public health workers in a CDC study or have active symptoms of depression, anxiety, or PTSD, or even suicidal ideation. So this has been incredibly stressful. So added to the fact that we started with less people than we needed and with less hospital beds as we needed and with less primary care providers than we needed and less specialists than we needed. Now you have this really, uh, this pandemic that comes through and really stretches people uh, to their breaking point. You know, and, the, and, the, and I think to really get to the heart of your question, the answers to these things are multi-year answers. It's about increasing the pipeline, training more nurses right here in New Mexico, uh, training more primary care physicians here in New Mexico, which we have actually a very active program uh, that's up and running now, probably not a, so much a COVID topic, but there's a, a graduate medical education council. Legislature just commissioned a primary care council that just started up and it's looking with a very aggressive strategic plan to have us all be able to get to see our primary care physician when we need to, uh, which is always off. So unfortunately, you know, this is, involves even things like the work Matthew Probst is doing in Las Vegas of having programs for high school students to get them really interested in healthcare careers. And some of them go on, you know, to become medical assistants and maybe a couple years of uh, post high school training. Some go on to become nurses, you know, two to four to six years of post high school training. Some go on to become physicians, seven to, I don't know what neurosurgery is now, but, you know, 11 years of, uh, you know, post school training. So there, the turnaround time is, is significant. What I do think is different, though, is the pandemic has really raised uh, the awareness of policymakers of these shortages. I think. We used to talk about them and yeah, you know, we don't have as many hospital beds as other people, but we never had to face down a crisis where we might not have enough uh, opportunities to provide people care. And that's, I think from like a cabinet secretary point of view, advocating for additional resources, I think that's gonna be part of our future. In addition, Gail Armstrong, Representative Armstrong uh, from I think Berlin uh, passed a house memorial to look at the future of public health and public health, uh, you know, and departments of health. And we've been working with the university about some ideas about that as well. And so that all fits in as well, because in the end, we're in New Mexico in particular, we need to focus on equity and solve some of those equity issues in healthcare, while at the same time forging, forging stronger public-private partnerships, which we've clearly learned how to do here during this pandemic with our medical advisory team and the incredible cooperation of our hospitals. And so this is a massive long range undertaking. So uh, I think the short run uh, isn't, I, I'm not optimistic. I don't think we'll, I think we're in a struggle to fill in some of the gaps that are being left by people leaving the workforce because there's been so much stress. But I think they're long, 
run opportunities are very strong in New Mexico. We just have to get from where we are now to, uh, you know, two or three years out where we have more people in the pipeline, can train them and get them into, uh, um, you know, the, the life of service that people who do healthcare actively choose. All right, next we have Sean Griswold. Sean, you are unmuted and able to share. Hello, thank you so much for taking the call. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about schools and understand a little bit more um, from what I heard from PED this week is that there was also another dip that we heard about last week. And so if you could explain some of the data behind the um, reduction in cases that report reported on campus. And also if you could also have an understanding or could explain to us if DOH does report numbers differently than PED. Let me, let me uh, briefly talk about the dip and then Christine can talk about the numbers uh, a little bit more. I'm just gonna go back to an almost complete version of the slide uh, she showed because I can do it quickly because I had it up. And uh, this is the case rates by age group. So I'm just going to say that for the purposes of this discussion, we will consider five to 17 our school age population. And uh, hopefully you'll all agree that that's pretty darn close. You can see the orange line is that population. You can trace it through, but then you can go back to about three weeks ago where it was at a peak. It dropped the next week. Uh, the next week, uh, and now we're, it's kind of, I'm so bad with colors. It's leveled off a little bit. It's horizontal right there. And I'm really sorry if that's hard to see. If you all can keep in mind that it's the orange line, I can do better than that. Um, oh, I thought I could do better than this. Yeah, I can. So you can see it a little bit better here comes down and then sort of kind of takes a mild left turn there and and a little bit more level. So this is the trend we're seeing. And, and uh, Christine, do you wanna talk a little bit about PED data, DOH data? Sure, I, I would just say that, you know, PED is, is reporting out on um, cases that they uh, learn about through the rapid response um, efforts. And you know we're receiving every single uh, electronic lab report uh, here at the state, and so what we're reporting out are cases among uh, school-aged uh, children. So it, it, there's no. Um, uh, we don't know when we report that data out, we're not making a statement there as to whether that uh, child was uh, exposed or infected on campus, was uh, uh, exposed and infected in the community, et cetera. So we receive all uh, electronic lab reports and then we report out case rates uh, by age group um, accordingly. Um, I cannot speak in detail uh, on the PED data, but I can tell you we work together. Um, we're given lists of um, exposed contacts and our uh, very, very hardworking case investigation contact tracing unit uh, follows those up. Um, and we're trying to actually strengthen this collaboration. So we, we do have some uh, a new working group that we put together. Um, uh, now that we've got uh, the majority of schools um, uh, operating uh, back uh, on campus, um, and now that we're dealing with this, we have been dealing with this surge in cases um, uh, among children, 
uh, we are really trying to strengthen that collaboration. So I think what you what you've described that they reported out a decrease in their number of cases. Uh, I think that's accurate. That and that coincides with the data that we're uh, that we're sharing as well from our surveillance data. All right, and next we have Brittany Costello. And then if anybody has another round of questions, feel free to raise your hand. Um, Brittany, you should be able to share. Hi, uh, thank you guys so much again. Uh, Brittany Costello with KOB4. My question is on the booster. So I would love for you to kind of break down why the full approval was denied, um, what the difference between the full approval and the EUA is, and also the path forward um, kind of in, in less medical terms, if that's possible. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, do you want to take that one, Laura? You're on mute, though. I was just going to pull up the slide that just kind of shows the little, um, the little tracker here. Sorry, and I can explain that. Um, While you're doing that, I'll just start by saying, yeah, you know, a full approval just means uh, that the FDA feels that there's very strong evidence to show that, uh, you know, this fact that an additional dose of the vaccine will significantly reduce disease in this case for this particular thing. EUA means that while there is good evidence that it would be effective in subgroup, subgroups or in, in, in some people, there's not enough evidence to warrant full approval at the present time. You'll remember that Pfizer was on EUA until just very, very recently, I think up uh, in August, and Moderna still on EUA, Johnson & Johnson still on EUA. So as these new drug manufacturers or vaccine manufacturers bring something to market, they continue to collect more and more and more data that just shows that not only is this good in the face of an emergency, but this is good in the long run. And so we talked a couple of press conferences ago about that, uh, the spirit of debate that's going on about boosters and, uh, you know, uh, two different camps and uh, the article in the Lancet and the Dr. Fauci's approach. And so we're in the middle of that kind of discussion and debate within the New Mexico Department of Health and state government as well. But it's it's interesting because a lot of new, you know, there's lots of evidence out there. So now, Laura, do you want to talk about okay. the rollout plan? Yeah, so I can talk about the rollout plan. So the way it's rolling out, sorry, I just I don't have, okay, I got it now. Um, let me just share it with you. Thank you for the question. Um, so. Basically, the way it's rolling out is that um, just, you know, to, to look at the timeline. So, you know, on Friday, the FDA does the review and they look at all the evidence, like David says. And the reason why they did not approve for 16 and over was really the evidence wasn't there to really show that if you did 16 and over, that would actually benefit 16 and overs. There's a lot of um, controversy or not controversy, but kind of debate around the fact that the actual doses that are currently being given are extremely effective for preventing hospitalizations and deaths. And given the fact that there's so many people still unvaccinated, both in the United States and globally, there's a debate around, well, if you really want to prevent um, you know, the pandemic from, from spreading and getting worse, 
you know, should you focus on boostering the people who already got two vaccines versus getting the people who actually haven't been vaccinated yet and are still dying or getting hospitalized? So that's kind of where that debate is lying, you know, or living. And then also concerns that the data showing that the booster dose is it really much, much better, you know, in, in terms of giving people even more, like th there's a debate around waning immunity. Is that immunity really waning? Do you really need that booster dose? So that's kind of where it's standing and what they're discussing today and tomorrow at the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices and the CDC is really weighing in on, you know, you know, FDA did the review and they said, yes, 65 plus and high risk people at high risk for severe COVID. Now these, these, these teams, these work groups are going to now discuss, um, you know, is, is it going to be 65 plus? Is it going to be who, who high risk severe groups are going to be considered high risk severe at risk for severe COVID? You know, so is it going to be healthcare workers as well as people with comorbidities? Um, is it going to be essential workers, teachers? That's what they're discussing in these next two days. Once they make their recommendation tomorrow, then our medical advisory team is going to review all of that and make their recommendation to, um, to New Mexico. And then that's when our team will be like, oh my gosh, now we have to put all the numbers together, operationalize all this. And so we'll be doing that over the weekend. And then on Monday, the booster doses will, for those eligible groups will then come online. Does that, does that explain a little bit? Yeah, it does. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. All right, next up, we have Chris McKee with a second question. Chris, you should be able to share. All right, thanks again. Um, Chris, this question can't be as hard as the last one. <laughs> I promise it. I think this one will be easier. I don't know. Um, we'll give it a shot. <laughs> so basically, um, this is in relation to something Lanel has recently done. I understand they sent out a note to all their employees sort of saying, for those who filed for a religious exemption for the COVID vaccine, those employees will either have to take vacation or unpaid leave um, starting October 15th until the lab determines that the sort of COVID-19 threat has diminished sufficiently to allow for sort of a full return to work for those with those re religious exemptions. So I just wanted to see if I could gather anyone's thoughts on the decision, if the state perhaps any had any consultation in this. Um, and, you know, maybe are there thoughts about should other New Mexico employers sort of take note or would the state consider this? Thank you. Well, I'll start and just say I haven't seen that memo. And sometimes the it's the detail that's really important. So if you want to, if you have a copy of it and you want to send it over, Chris, I'll be happy to take a look and get back to you with my comments. I'll send a link to where I read it from. Okay. And is it, is it, uh, you can just drop it in the chat. Is it, they can't work at all or they can work from home? Um, As I understand, um, this is that they are not allowed to work at the building 
Um, I'm not sure if it's a work from home situation. Uh, I know okay. sometimes national labs have a lot of security protocol for that. So I'm right. not entirely sure if they'll be allowed to work from home, but let me uh, okay. grab a link and I'll send it over. Yeah, I think, I think the state's position on this with our employees, which is really, and I know, but also I, we talk about this at the mat a lot too. So we have a lot of other big systems who have employees as well is, uh, Number one, I think I started out just sort of assuming that people would either get vaccinated or go get a religious exemption, but that, that hasn't been the case. It's actually been a very small number of people. I mentioned last week at HSD, out of you know 1,500 employees, we've had one such exemption so far. So they are uh, relatively infrequent. And I think my, I think the state's position is that we're not really in a position to verify whether uh, someone's religious beliefs are genuine or not, that we're, you know, we have to take this at face value, face value. We trust that our employees act in good faith in all their other dealings with our customers and in their job. And, and so uh, uh, again, I'd have to read the memo, but I think I've, I've been impressed with the fact that the, these exemptions are relatively small in number. Uh, the people who, request them are pretty heartfelt in their convictions. And I think we all, every single person on this call uh, has heartfelt convictions about something. And, uh, you know, part of what makes America, America and what makes New Mexico a great place to live is the degree to which we are willing to accept at face value uh, people's deep personal convictions. So I think you'll see state government basically taking employees at, at their word. And, you know, we're more back returning to uh, our office as well. And so, um, you know, it, it, I, I, uh, I'm really wouldn't really say that anybody else should do that, but we'll look forward to talking to the folks on the modeling team, at least from Lionel and see if they have any insight into that next week. We're going to have to excuse Christine pretty soon. Is that right, Christine? Or did you, uh, uh, Christine, you know, you guys don't realize it, but uh, we actually have real lives too. Sometimes our families don't realize it either, but, uh, you know, we're parents, uh, grandparents. You can tell which one of us is a grandparent. Uh, and uh, and uh, so Christine has a uh, picking up one of her kids from school. Soon she'll slip away. So if we have any last really super hard epidemiology questions, we should call on someone to ask it right now. Well, Julia is up next, and Julia, you're my guest for maybe having an epi question, so go for it. It's actually not, and it's an easy question. It's just something that I keep meaning to check. Dr. Space, you mentioned every week that if someone is um, has an exposure to COVID, they should go get tested, and they should stay home while they wait for their results. And I just wanted to clarify, is that because the Public Education Department's toolkit says that people who have been exposed but are fully vaccinated and asymptomatic do not need to quarantine, by which I assume they mean do not need to stay home from school. Are, th are those contradictory in some way um, or are they not contradictory? And I only noticed it because Santa Fe Public Schools quotes the PED part of the toolkit every day with its cases. And I thought, isn't that the opposite of what Dr. Space has been saying? Yeah, those are different. I think there is a difference in what I've been saying. I think. Some of us, the time course, we developed that toolkit in uh, uh, late June, early July. 
uh, finalized it near the end of July before the reports about vaccinated people, uh, you know, uh, potentially harboring and communicating COVID. I'll circle back with Kurt. I think when we talk at this press conference about getting tested uh, and waiting for your test results, uh, I think the point is to exercise caution, protect other people. Uh, but yeah, I'll talk with uh, Kurt about that approach and that difference and the change in CDC. The toolkit is an enormous amount of work for PED to put out. I mean, it's just a colossal undertaking. And so they don't update it like on a real-time basis, but I imagine acting, uh, Des Secretary-designate Steinhaus has got, a, as a former superintendent himself, a list of things he needs to look at the next time they have to update the toolkit, just like I have a list of things we need to look at when we update the public health order next. But thanks for bringing up that discrepancy and I'll talk with him about it. Thanks. All right, and then lastly, it looks like we have Sean Griswold. Sean, go ahead and ask your question. Um, all right, thanks again. Um, actually, I, that, my last question was um, for the person who just left us, but I guess I'm curious to understand. I'll ask another question um, regarding case counts going down in schools. Um, if any of you have knowledge on the task force that was created that was just discussed earlier in my previous question regarding communication between the uh, Department of Health and public education, I would like any details about that, such as who might make up the task force and then and, and what needs were addressed or were brought up to address why the task force was created. That's helpful. But um, if anybody you can ask regarding case counts going down once more, um, with case counts continuing to decline in schools. Are we anywhere near herd immunity regarding the amount of cases in within kids who are in public schools? Uh, so I'll, let me just take a quick shot of both of those, Sean, good questions. I might've used the phrase task force and I didn't mean it in the sort of more grandiose sense. Uh, Christine and I have talked, I think she's gonna take the lead to ensure, uh, you know, planning, coordination, between what's going on in PED and EPI. They're very different worlds. You heard today that uh, PED gets their data from uh, reports from families and rapid responses. EPI has a direct link to all the laboratories. And so we're just trying to improve that communication. All in all, things have worked smoothly, lots of cooperation. PED relies very heavily on, uh, on epidemiology. They, they don't have medical experts or making those kind of medical or epidemiologic or public health decisions. So we have to work together, but it's sort of more formalizing a regular group. So it's, I probably made it sound more formal than it was, but that is the intent. And I think on the herd immunity front, we're kind of, uh, I don't think there's any hope for anything approximating herd immunity in schools, if herd immunity is even achievable. And we're not even sure about that now until school-age kids are all eligible to be fully vaccinated. And, you know, without that, you've got almost no one, you know, vaccinated in the school, in the kids category from five to 11, uh, of course, 12 to 17 are. And so I think the more people vaccinated, the less opportunities the virus has to spread. It's unfortunate that Delta is so contagious that it can, can live in a vaccinated person's nose and even spread to another person, even though it doesn't cause serious illness in the person who's been vaccinated, 
if it spreads to an unvaccinated person, it can. So we don't have a num numerical or even a certainty about herd immunity anymore, but the more kids we get vaccinated in schools, the better. Laura, do you want to add anything to that with the upcoming possibility of uh, vaccine being available? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, um, I, I mean, to me, this is like the most exciting thing for this next group of people who can get vaccinated, which is the five to 11 year old group. And so our team is working on setting that up and working with PED as well as um, through the testing program. So one of the groups that we are using for the testing program that I think last, last week we showed on the website, like how people can access the school testing the same group that we're using for school testing, which is Premier Medical Group, is also able to do vaccines at the schools. So I think just preparing for it, getting, you know, getting, I think the biggest barrier is gonna be getting parents to um, get their questions answered and uh, feel comfortable with the, with the, you know, of course there's gonna be some parents that are definitely gonna just go get their kids vaccinated, but for people who have questions, I think that's gonna be our biggest challenge next is to make sure we get good information out. And I think having providers really, our pediatricians or family physicians um, who are the ones who are at the front lines of, of um, taking care of our kids, um, if we can get them to sign up to get vac uh, vaccines, that people will feel comfortable either, you know, taking their kids to the pharmacy or taking them to their primary care provider to get vaccinated. So I think that's our next big step for vaccinating kids. All right. We'll say too, Sean. Sorry, David. Just one last thing, Sean. You know that it's the most common question I get, and it's from everybody who knows me who has a child between five and 11, and not just in New Mexico. Everybody who knows me who has a job between five and 11 is asking like, so when do you think the vaccine is gonna be available? When can I get my kids vaccinated? You know, I have a kid who's 11 and a half, should I like fudge it and get them vaccinated now? And you know, like the, that's a hard question to answer. I usually say fudging generally isn't a good idea when it has to do with your uh, health and medical records. But uh, you know, it's everyone is really interested in this and we, and we're really proud of, uh, you know, if you like, for example, we have a very successful program, Vaccines for Children in the state. And and uh, those are uh, a lot of pediatricians, family practitioners who give a lot of vaccines. The federal government uh, provides us the money for the vaccines. And 98% of those people are already giving COVID. So we feel optimistic about the readiness of the uh, network of providers who take care of kids to take on this next challenge. Okay, now, Hannah, you can start wrapping it up. <laughs> no worries. Thanks, Dr. Scrace. Uh, and thanks for everybody's questions. Um, I don't see anything else. So I will turn it back to you, Dr. Scrace and Dr. Patahone, for any closing thoughts. Go ahead, Laura. All right. No, once again, thanks so much for having us. And I mean, just once again, grateful that you guys are getting the message out. And we really will need your help getting the message out once we know what the boosters are. Um, you know, what, what groups and categories are, and also once we have kids online. So um, yeah, thanks for all you do. And uh, just uh, stay tuned. We'll have more for you next week, I guess. Yeah. And even though we, and I would just close by saying thank you as well. Uh, I really appreciate everybody who's getting the word out and particularly just as I already did, shout out to our rural media partners who are getting into the corners of New Mexico that 
we don't always get into with our messaging, but also to uh, those of you in more central and urban areas of the state who are doing such a good job. I think the thing that I've been really thinking about a lot this week is that the countermeasures against the virus we need to take are directly proportional to the virus's infectivity. And so it's just settling in on me that these comparisons I keep making in my head to what we did you know, a year ago when you know, COVID, when contained, you know, generally contained one person was affecting, infecting one into one and a half people is a different world than now when Delta in the graphic Christine showed Delta is infecting every person is infecting on average two to four or five other people. And so we're, uh, uh, in, we're at a point now where we're really, uh, in, a, I think need to think, as we've said before about the long run and how do we set things up so we can continue to do the things we enjoy in our life, but just make sure we're being safe while we're doing them. And, you know, I don't want to be here a year from now with another, uh, you know, uh, 4,719 deaths in addition to the ones we already have. We, we have to make progress. We have to uh, do better. And so we thank you all, even though we're doing well compared to many other states, we still need your help to get that word out. So thank you very much and have a great day.